1: Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Humphrey, thanks for joining us today.
0: Hey, Kwame, thanks for having me on. Really excited to be on
1: here. Yeah, man, I'm excited to have you. I mean, it's it's been a while since I've actually seen you, so it's good to see your face again. Um, yeah, so definitely. How about you get us started? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
0: Sure. Um, my name is Humphrey Recon. Um, I live in Nairobi, Kenya. I work for a company called Cross Boundary, which is a uh, investment firm that's really mission-driven and impact-focused. And it's focusing on, focused really on harnessing the power of capital um, to make a return and a lasting impact in, in frontier markets. Um, and so a lot of that's in Africa, but really um, globally, um, honestly. And so... Um, and what I do at Cross Boundaries, I'm I'm on a team called Cross Boundary Energy Access. So what we focus on is is financing uh, mini grids. So if you're not familiar with what mini grids are, they are um, these, they're they're essentially standalone electric systems that are able to bring power to communities that don't have electricity. So think you have a community, think about 300 houses off the beaten path, uh, a mini grid company will come out there. um, They will, and to to build a mini grid, they'll bring solar panels. Um, It can be other technology, but typically solar. So solar panels, um, some batteries for storage, a backup generator for, for, to make sure they have 24 seven power, put poles in the ground, wires, meters on people's houses, connect them. And all of a sudden they've built a mini version of the, the utility grid that, that, that you might be used to. And those, are their, those 300 houses are their customers. And then they go um, a, few, a few miles down the road and do it again. And so um, these, things are, these things really have uh, the potential to, to make a huge impact on the continent. If you look in Africa, about 1.2 billion people, um, and almost half of them, 600 million people, do not have access to electricity. And we know that these mini grids are are the least cost way of bringing power to uh, well over 100 million of them, but they're quite difficult to finance. And so what we work on is trying to find a way to to bring finance at scale into this sector and 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 put the money into these these mini grids and, and make the impact um, that's necessary and it, it, with with a commercial a commercial focus.
1: That's fantastic. And I think what's interesting about this is that for a lot of listeners, they might see this as some kind of goodwill mission, right? Okay. We see people in need, we're going to bring the energy to them. Now they're in a better position. But what's interesting about this is that it's not just that you're doing great work and helping people. There's also the financial part of it. This is a legitimate business, right?
0: Yeah, most definitely. And so, um, uh, it is a legitimate- it's a legitimate di- business in a lot of different ways right You have mini grid developers companies that are going out there um and actually building these things and getting mini grid customers individual homes in rural communities across africa as their customers who pay them uh by the kilowatt hour um or some other means for electricity uh, at the same time from our perspective um we we realize that in order for this the finance to really scale here, you need the private sector. Um, there are areas where there, there there's subsidy. There are some fantastic programs in Africa um, from from uh, places like the UK government, um, the World Bank, uh, CETA, All of these places are, are all all of them have really great mini grid um, financing and subsidy schemes. But at the same time, you need that private capital to come in next to it in um, and, and order to really to really make this happen. Because mini grids are infrastructure. And so where you do have the, the the public capital there in the sector, you need private capital to come in at scale and invest alongside of it. And we know that there's a $1 billion plus infrastructure capital market out there. And what we're trying to do is get mini grids access to that type of capital and establish mini grids as infrastructure assets.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah. So this is big business. So the deals that you do, they they help people and they you're it's it's an incredible um, evolving market on the continent. And I think that's what makes your perspective here so interesting. Because one thing that you didn't mention is that um, you're a Buckeye like me, right? We both went to OSU, but also you have your MBA from Georgetown. You did a lot of energy work here in the States. And so your approach is going to be a very interesting and unique blend of what you learned here and your business experience here, along with your culture that you brought you know, with you, because you are Ghanaian, um, but and what you've already learned through your work there. So I think it's going to be interesting to explore your unique approach to negotiation here. And so listeners, what we're going to do is we're going to explore five key topics uh, as it relates to negotiation that Humphreys recognized that are beneficial in knowing how to negotiate effectively on the continent. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out these gems of of wisdom that you can apply in your everyday negotiation. So we're going to use Humphrey's experience essentially as a case study for all of us to, to learn more about what it means for us. And so the first thing that you mentioned, Humphrey, is that Africa isn't a monolith. And I think for some, we might need to say Africa isn't a country. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> so, so when you think about Africa not being a monolith, what really comes to mind for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, when you well, yeah, when we were talking about this and you're saying, look, I'd, I'd like to explore... Uh, negotiating in Africa, and I, I sat and I thought about. It. I was like, I don't know what I can tell you in general about negotiating in Africa. Africa is so many different things, right? You're, I mentioned earlier, you've got 1.2 billion people, 50 plus countries, um, thousands of languages. You've got countries that speak English, uh, French, Portuguese. You have the different legal systems, the different um, government types, economies. Um, you have to look. Uh, at every single country and every single culture, and 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 be quite specific in what you're talking about. So I I I I couldn't look at you like with a straight face and say, okay, I, I I'm an expert in negotiating in Africa. I mean, I have experience um, negotiating project finance uh, contracts um, in certain African countries, um, but <laughs> but but I think that's that's as far as I can actually go, um, honestly. And so that's, that's, that's really what I meant about Africa's not a monolith. And, and I think it's, it's probably similar to whatever type of business you're in. It's just that you need to be specific. Um, you, you, need, you need to get into the, the nitty-gritty details because at the high level, when you're talking in negotiations, it, it usually, it's, it's usually just not sufficient.
1: Absolutely. And there there's so many ways that we can look at this, too. Right, because we look at Africa. Africa is massive, multiple countries, multiple languages, all these different cultures. Right, it's it's in, it's really diverse. And then something similar happens sometimes when you might be negotiating with a company. You might say, "Oh, and people from this company negotiate in this way," but. Is it that you dealt with one specific person who negotiated in that way, a specific a specific department? Because when you think about cultural intelligence, what you're recognizing is that culture is everywhere. So you have culture between countries. You have culture between communities. We have is even within organizations. And so the culture that is within the software or IT department within a company is going to be different from HR. And that might change the way that you interact with the person based on the unique culture that's in front of you.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. And I, I think that there's, there's kind of like a, a mixture there, right? Because like you said, is it, is it a negotiation with that individual person? Or is it uh, their department or the whole company? And, um, and then when you have to separate that from the idea that, you know, sometimes we think, okay, it's business, it's not personal. There is a personal aspect to it, right? We're, we are dealing with an individual person, and how to properly separate that from okay, is it the business? Is it the the culture of an industry? Is it the culture of a department? Um, I think it's sometimes it's not that easy to 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 just to to pick that apart properly, especially in a negotiation which can be heated, uh, and and you're and you're and you're in the moment, and 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 tempers can flare. Hopefully not, but you know your 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 mind is moving, your blood is pumping, all of those together, yeah
1: yeah no, that's interesting. and based on your experience, what were some of the biggest surprises for you culturally as you started to get deeper into this?
0: Wow, i actually i'm not I'm not even sure where to start. Um, one of the things worth noting is that, that here negotiation in general is just, it's just a way of it's just a way of life, right. Um, when I step out and if I want to go across town. I I mean, there would, it used to be more like this in cities in the States, but here you got taxis everywhere. But when I flag down a the taxi, they don't have a, a meter inside of them. I flag them down. I say where I want to go. They look at me. They look at what I'm wearing. They hear my accent, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then they quote a price, right? Which then I need to try to cut in half and, <laughs> and negotiate from there. And so one of the, one of the things that... that when you see negotiation just essentially as a way of life in that way is that one of the things that i we, i've seen is people are willing and able and comfortable enough i guess in their negotiation to make very bold asks because you know why not right um, <laughs> just just earlier today uh, my wife went to go buy some fish and and um she knew the price because her mother goes there often and, 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 and the, the price is 25 CDs. The woman said, hey, um, this, this fish is 40 CDs. I mean, she, she did just from the way she spoke, the way she looked um, and, and made an assessment and said, I'm going to try to sell you this for 40 CDs. A very, I mean, a, 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 you know, getting close to double the price. And, and, and luckily, um, with, the, with the, I guess, I think something we hit on later, preparation and having knowledge of, of the situation, she was, she was able to say no. It's 25 cities, You know my mother. This is the money for the fish that I ordered. Thank you. Um, and I think we see it also kind of in the negotiations that we do on and the, the commercial negotiations and in, in contracts for 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 many grids and or with uh, with with investors on the continent. Is that you have um, you have folks that are, are more comfortable making these bold asks. And so um, I think that that's one of the things that surprised me.
1: Hi, I'm Katherine Kanapke, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at the American Negotiation Institute. Did you know our company offers completely customizable negotiation workshops? The negotiation and conflict resolution skills that your team will learn from these workshops are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram accounts to see our daily negotiation content. Thanks for listening. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days.
0: All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay
1: off. Yeah, it's really interesting. It reminds me of one of our earlier episodes. We had uh, an episode on the unique negotiation culture of India. And what I'm recognizing is that different com- cultures, different countries have more of a, a storied history of negotiation, right? Where it says, okay, this is how we this is how we communicate and talk. This is just how we engage in commerce, right? And I think that that's surprising for a lot of folks in the u s. And then when we think about it in the commercial space, it seems as though that that culture of being comfortable asking for what you want, plus a significant amount (laughs) probably creeping in and so what impact does that have on the actual negotiations um
0: i think there are a few things right so sometimes if if you have a counterparty who is making these types of asks um it's just a matter of understanding uh the culture that you're in and and not becoming flustered right not saying this is so far from what i'm used to or what i'm expecting that we can't close a deal because we're so far apart culturally where uh, culturally here in Africa, you have a lot of you have a lot of parties, individuals, companies, etc., who are used to starting like this and meeting somewhere in the middle, and so they will make that ask, or they will make a, a high anchor or a low anchor or something of that nature, uh, and they, and they'll they'll do it. Uh, remarkably well.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That is really good to know. And um, listeners, you know, at some point, it's always coming when I talk about the free guides. Uh, so if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com guide, you can get access to all of our free guides. So business negotiation guide. And I know you're going to talk about negotiation preparation coming up here, Humphrey. But also we have an anchoring guide. I don't talk about that one very often, but it actually walks you through how to anchor effectively in your negotiation. So if you're saying to yourself, what is this term anchor? that Humphrey just said. Um, check out that guide so you can use it because it's powerful. And what I'm recognizing too is if you don't understand that culture and you don't recognize that what you're dealing with is an anchor, an aggressive request where they're anticipating some pushback, then not only is it a situation where you could say, oh, we're too far apart, I'm just going to walk away, but it is a situ- it's also a situation where if you do decide to engage you could be taken advantage of in that you're giving away more value than you need to
0: exactly that, that that's definitely a huge risk you hit the nail on the head
1: yeah oh that's fascinating that is really really fascinating and so one of the things that you talked about was being a foreigner coming here and starting to negotiate in the commercial space there were some challenges um and building the relationship was critical for you and so can you tell us a bit more about that challenge and what you were able to do to overcome that yeah,
0: yeah, sure. And so, I mean, um, yeah, when we were talking about this, the idea was that, you know, typically um, what you might be used to if you're coming from a, a more Western culture will be, okay, we have a negotiation. The topic of the negotiation is X. You get on the call, you say hello, and you just jump right into X, right? But here, um, I, I just found that and maybe to caveat this, the types of negotiations that we're working on when we when we're building these mini grids, uh, when we're investing in these mini-grids and financing them, they're long-term relationships, right? Our contracts are for for 10, 15 year relationships, right? And so culturally here, before you get into this 10-year contract, you really want to be comfortable with 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 who you're who you are, who you're working with. And so you have to build that relationship. Um, you have to make sure that when you get on the calls, you, you take the time to have that polite banter. You ask about people's wives, you ask about their children, you invite people to your house, um, you go to their house. It, 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 it has huge rewards professionally. That you're able to build a relationship that you can you can structure a partnership on, and huge re- rewards uh, personally. You get to meet great people. You get to learn amazing things about cultures that you're not you're that you're not as used to. And so um, I think that, that was that was one of the things that culturally for me, the idea that okay, let me just take the time um, and and build a relationship, and this being critical to the to, to the later nitty gritty negotiation is something that I wasn't I wasn't as used to.
1: Yeah, and what I'm seeing here is that there's there are levels to this game, right? <laughs> levels to when it comes to building this, this rapport. Because in, in the States, if you're in a Western-style negotiation, we talk about building rapport. And I know sometimes in, in my trainings, I'll say, hey, take some time to build rapport. Just take two, three minutes just with a little bit of pleasantries. But what you're talking about is different than what we would understand as building rapport right we're not just talking about those a couple minutes at the beginning of the call you're saying no we are investing in a relationship as the foundation
0: before we move on to the business side or while you're on the business side right i mean it's not like you just have to only build the relationship and then get into business but as you start and as you as you dip your toe into the the waters of a potential partnership and a potential deal you start to build that relationship and if you find yourself in the same city as the people you're working with uh, or and negotiating with then it, it definitely makes sense to i mean covid is kind of Almost made us forget what it's like to negotiate in person. <laughs> but negotiating in person, chatting afterwards, coffees, coffees turn into lunches, um, you know, barbecues, uh, etc. And so, um, I think, yeah, just building building that relationship and investing time. It really isn't extremely. It's not different, really, from from the rapport that 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 uh, yeah that, that you just mentioned. It's just um, taking it a, a, a few steps further, if you can.
1: That makes sense, and. For you as, it, it's so interesting for me, thinking of you as a foreigner in Africa. But again, it speaks to the fact that Africa is not a monolith. And it's funny, when I go back and um, I visit my family in the Caribbean, uh, there was a while in my life where I would go back and visit my family and they would say, you sound American. Then i come back home to the to the States and they're like, you sound Caribbean. I'm like, where is my home? I don't know <laughs> like who will have me. Oh, wow, <laughs> it's
0: so funny you say that. That is, that is, um... Yeah, that's my experience I guess everywhere I go. <laughs> I was I was in the states for Thanksgiving. I feel like a foreigner in the states sometimes. I'm in Ghana now. Um I'm in I'm in Ghana now. I've been here since uh since before Christmas and and you know I speak the language, but with a with a strange accent, <laughs> and then and 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 then and I live in Kenya, and so in in Kenya, I get you know I'm in these situ in, the, in these situations where let's say I'm grocery shopping, people come up to me, they start speaking Swahili, they think I'm Kenyan, and then I speak English, and, and they become quite disappointed. I, I I do plan on picking up um Swahili Swahili lessons uh for real in 2021, so that that'll be a big a big yeah. piece, and that'll help me with the culture a lot. I hope.
1: Well, this actually brings up an interesting point, right? Because, I mean, let's just be honest about this, right? You're Black, right? So you would, and you have a Ghanaian name. And so people would say, oh yeah, Humphrey, he's got an advantage here. But we're recognizing that there is still a distinction, right? There's still a bit of a barrier to rapport that you need to overcome. So based on your experience, what about if somebody was not black so somebody who is asian somebody who is white uh, somebody who is uh latino right if they are now trying to have these high level negotiations what barriers have you seen and how could they be overcome
0: yeah and so yes it's, it's it's a great question and so um i guess given my experience it's 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 i don't know how well i can really speak to someone else's experience in those shoes. But I think that, I mean, in 2020, 2021, this time when it comes to, you know, understanding things like, like um, race and privilege and cultures and all of these things, it's, it's definitely important to be cognizant of. Um, I I work with, People from all over the world uh, cross boundary is a, a very diverse firm um, we've got people um, from i don 't know how, how many countries in, in, in our in our uh, largest office, which is in nairobi and so um, and so yeah I, I mean I, I have plenty of people on the, my main team let's say has um, the guy who leads the team he's from the u k um, and he 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 so and so he's he's having and and leading quite a uh, quite a few complex negotiations on the continent um with all uh with different parties different counterparties from so many different places and um and yeah i mean he he is he does a very good job of building that rapport he's he's taking swahili lessons um he he does. A, he's. He's. It's actually pretty impressive. He, he he gets all over the the country. He he rides around on his motorbike. He's visited um, so many different places on the, in the country uh and on the continent. And and he generally does a really good job of of building with rapport internally with the team. So with someone like me who has the background you just did, we just talked about, and then that we have another person on on our team who who's Kenyan. And so I mean we're in a multicultural world, and so I think people have really just gotten great at, at understanding different cultures, building relationships with different cultures. And I don't know if it's really an Africa-specific thing. It's just uh, when you're doing global business, um, when you're doing the type of work that we're doing, you just, you just have to learn to, to be very humble um, and to listen and, and to be willing to learn. Um, I think those are some of the most important pieces of it.
1: Absolutely. And the thing is, when it comes to humility, that is a negotiation superpower, right? Because it is the thing that leads to curiosity. If you're humble, you're willing to step back and listen as well. And you're you're eager to learn. And um, you're willing to engage in order to learn. That's the thing. And um, that's what I found when I'm engaging in Cross cultural negotiations, and people would say, Oh, international negotiations. I'm like, no, well, it, not all of them. <laughs> a lot of them are just local, but we have to identify culture. Like I discussed earlier, culture comes in many different ways. And so I, I think this that's a really interesting example, right, of somebody who is clearly different in very obvious ways, um, but is willing to put forth the efforts to engage and learn and be humble. And um, it's paying dividends.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and and like you said, humility is such a key part of a negotiation. I think um, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how the number of times that, that I've been in wrong in a negotiation that you just need to keep that in mind, no matter how sure you are. Well, not not necessarily, no matter, but a lot of times you, you have to keep in mind the idea that you could be wrong, right? Yeah. And that you need to go in humble and looking to learn um, with very open ears. Um, and and it's it's so critical to having an effect uh, an effective negotiation, and it also has a really calming effect on the discussion in general, right? Because you 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 come off as very humble. It's very unlikely that um, that that people get hot headed. Uh, you can keep the and you can keep the the conversation very constructive.
1: Awesome. And one other thing that I wanted to get to is the the role of the public sector. In these deals, because it's very different there um, than in other places. So, can you? Take a second and tell us about that too.
0: Yeah, sure. So just f- for a bit of context, back um, when I was in the states, I was in Ohio. I was working for the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, which uh, regulates all of the investor-owned utilities in the States. So regulating the electric sector, natural gas, uh, landline telephones, um, interstate transportation, rail, um, water. Um, so so regulating those, and I, I had a focus on electricity and. When I was there in Ohio at the time, some of the the large utilities, being for example Duke Energy, um, AEP, uh, First Energy, AES was was in the country uh, was in the state as well. And so these are these are publicly traded companies, large companies that are in competition with one another um they the they're, 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 and the and in my role we served, served as the regulator right balancing the needs of the companies to to get a competitive return but at the same time the needs of the customers um to make sure that you know they're not being gouged um it, from a price perspective and balancing kind of the the policy needs let's say of the governments at the time where i am now so here on the continent a lot of times most countries have state-owned utilities right so we're not talking about competition anymore amongst competitive public owned uh companies but we're talking about a utility um for a uh a, a utility who is who's is quasi-governmental um and so uh and, and and doesn't really have competition in the same sense of what we what 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 i'd be Used to from from my, my role at the PUCO, and uh, you see that outside of just the electric sector, um, the governments. What I one of the things that's taken me a lot of time to learn and adjust, adjust to here is the role of of governments on on the continent. Sometimes it's just different. Than, than than what I'm used to. They 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 can be more influential um, in business, uh, and and it's just really important to make sure you you account for that. And so every 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 time we are. Um, Looking to do business in a new country, in a new jurisdiction, recognizing how important it is to to make sure you have the right legal and regulatory context, um, learn from experience sometimes the hard way. The first thing we do is always to um, get a a get a, a good law firm on the ground in country and take our business model to them and ask them to do a legal and regulatory review of our business model and what we're trying to do. And say and ask them to say, look, what are what is everything we need to understand, right? What's the licensing process? What applies to us? Um, we do a separate tax review. Uh, we do, and 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 then by doing going through this process, we have an idea of all of the legal and regulatory risks, all of the all the entire process, um, everything that our our business will be exposed to from a legal um, regulatory uh, from a legal and regulatory side, and just having that knowledge is so critical, especially. In negotiations, um, so it's great. It's it, it's important. You know, you need to have it to properly set up the business, properly get moving. But in negotiations, when you're when you're having those 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 contract discussions, you need to have a very good regulatory context. Um, it, it it can definitely come back to bite you
1: if you don't. Absolutely, and it makes so much sense too. Because I think about even here domestically, as because I still practice because I want to keep my negotiation skills sharp. Um, one of my biggest frustrations is when people call me in too late. You know, they. It's like, hey, Kwame, I I negotiated this deal. Okay, did you consider the legal ramifications of said deal? No, I have not. Oh, so I'm playing from behind. That's fantastic. Um, So, so I appreciate that, and I think it's so important and something that we should all take into consideration. But also specifically in your context, recognizing that you have to understand the game you're playing. Because if you just come in and think about this in terms of um, the the energy deals that you're doing and the the numbers and the payoffs and all that stuff, but you forget that regulatory context, then you're not playing the right game the right way. And even though you think you struck a really solid deal, like you said, it can come back to bite you in the end.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. And and I mean, that, that it, all of it comes down to, well, being humble and humble enough to realize there's a lot you don't know. And then from there, being prepared. Um, and so And those are those i mean from for me when I think about if 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 I go through kind of the, my top three let's say general negotiation principles, it's important to be be humble, be prepared, and be open and by being open, I mean just being open to listening, being open to to being wrong, being open to 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 things you didn't think about new solutions and and those three are so critical and and I'm sure we could even spend this whole podcast just diving into just those and and how important it is to make sure you do those right.
1: Absolutely. And for the listeners too, for every episode, we do a pre-interview chat. And um, one of the the things that I love to hear in the guests is when they say, you know, I mean, I don't know how much of an expert I am at this. And then I'm like, oh, yep. So he has the uh, humility check. (laughs) So that means probably a great negotiator, right? Because when you think about the, the success that you have had at this, you are clearly a good negotiator, but it's that mindset of humility that you bring to the negotiation that makes you such a good negotiator. And I I think that philosophy is so great and so simple. Um, And the thing that I like about the simplicity is that it's easy to remember, right? You know, those three things, those three principles, if you have that as the foundation, then that is a really solid foundation upon which you can build higher level negotiation techniques, which you do have.
0: No, I, I think, I think you're right. And I, I like the way you framed that. Um, I do, I actually, I actually am humble and, uh, but I, at least I like to think that I am, but I think that, um, to, what, what really makes, I think any negotiation effective, maybe is the, the third one there be, be open because listening and, and, and really being solution oriented, um, being open to to being wrong, and also just it's a it's a mindset, right? The idea that um, this is not a fight. I'm not going in to shove my ideas some down down someone's throat. Um, I'm not going, and and the, and the reverse isn't happening to me either. I need to be open to learning. This is a learning opportunity. I need to understand what um, what exactly is it um, that the counterparty wants, and how can I can how can I give that to them while still, um, while still getting what I need? And so, and, and that's, and then, and, and it's just, once you kind of flip into that mindset, um, it just opens your ears to to all the different possibilities that can fit um, in that box of, I gave them what they want and I still get what I need. Um, and, and, and then, and then, and then you're good to go essentially.
1: This is great. And think about how these three things play into each other too, right? You're prepared because you do something like, I don't know, download the free guides from the website as I always talk about. Um, And so then also you're humble, which leads you to be more curious. So you ask more questions. That curiosity gives you more information. And then you're open to new possibilities. And when you put all those things together, puts you in a better position to have creative deals. And that creativity, gives you a greater likelihood of success, because the more paths to victory you have, the more likely you are to achieve a victory. And that creativity is a major aspect of uh, effective negotiation. And so in your experience, how have you seen creativity really push deals over the edge?
0: Now that's, a, that's a very interesting question, Kwame. And so maybe what we, what I, if we step back and frame kind of what we're doing at Cross Boundary Energy Access and what we're trying to do, Right. We are trying to invest in mini grids um, and and bring finance to mini grids like infrastructure. So if you think of something like a wind farm in Europe, um, what they have is you build the wind farm and then you have long term inflation linked cash flows that are essentially guaranteed or contracted from a credible off taker. And that allows a debt provider um, or a lender to come in and and say, look, this looks like a bankable project and I can lend money to it. now, if we want to say we want to treat mini grids like infrastructure, but, we, but the issue is we don't have, um, we don't have long-term inflation linked cash flows from a credible offtaker. We don't have the government of Sweden on the opposite side of a power purchase agreement that has signed, let's um, you know, say, a 15-year deal to buy electricity or 20-year deal or 30-year deal to buy power from our, from our plant that you put millions of dollars into. What we have are individual rural households thousands of individual rural households um in africa who uh you know these are often marginalized communities and so they really only have the ability to pay let's say uh the equivalent of about five dollars a month in electricity and they don't have a contract right they're not gonna, they're not saying look we're going to buy all the electricity it's it's more on us to say um what we need to do is provide um High-quality power, twenty-four-seven power, and the type of power that allows you to to um, to, to be productive and to and to, and to make money. Essentially, the power that you can use for productive uses to to run a grain mill or a barbershop shop um, and or refrigerators and sell cold drinks, something to make money. And we need to have very reliable power, right? Because if you look across the world, um, once people get electricity, and if it's high-quality electricity. It's, it's quite addictive. You're going to keep using it, right? And so knowing that we don't have, knowing that we don't have, you know, a contract with a credible offtaker, um, you know, to pay this price over this period of time, we had to be quite creative in how we line this up with infrastructure finance. Um, and so uh, the the way we've approached the, the, that um, creatively with lenders, um, with, with financiers, um, with our counterparts, the developers, all of it together is kind of all in the secret sauce of how we make CBEA work, and I call it secret sauce, but it's actually not that secret. Um, so, so what we did late at the end of last year is we 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 uh, essentially open sourced our approach. Um, so. Uh, this, is, this is CBEA. It was kind of a pioneering pilot fund, um, first ever project financing for mini grids in Africa. And what we did is we, we open sourced it. We said we, we, uh, we are putting out our, our term sheets for our project finance contracts, um, which are really critical to how you align incentives, our bankable project finance model. As well, making that available and then shared like a, a pretty extensive and detailed white paper that it, that kind of says this is how we approach the challenges like 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 this revenue risk um, and these are the on the ground realities. These are the challenges that we still have remaining risks, and we open source everything. and You can actually see everything on our website and and see the the whole breakdown of of, of how we um, apply infrastructure project finance to to these uh, distributed mini grid assets.
1: Yes. So I think I think this is great. So we'll have links to all of that in um on on in the descriptions. So um the company's website, Humphrey's uh, LinkedIn and all of those things. And um what I really appreciate about this is the the power of creativity here because you're in a in a world right now where you're blazing the trail. And so you are the rules, really, when it comes to the, the standard operating procedures for these negotiations. And then I feel like it's a very interesting business strategy as well to share the, what could have been the secret sauce to making this happen. And so for your company, what's the strategy of being so generous with uh, that approach?
0: yeah maybe a few things to impact there right I, 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 we wish we could say that we are the rules i mean we we do feel like we are we are blazing the trail, but the fact is infrastructure finance is something that that is there it's used on roads and bridges and 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 power projects um et etc across the world um so the rules exist what we're doing is we're taking something that isn't typically infrastructure finance and Adapting it for those rules. So unfortunately, we don't get to make the rules, but we do have to be creative in how we um, apply the rules. Uh, and so, and then, and then, and then, secondly, to to why why we decided to open source this. I mean, ultimately, when we open sourced our approach, it, it, um, we we don't think it's necessarily the only way to finance mini grids. It's something, and, and we don't think it's perfect either. Um, the idea here was that we tried uh we tried something to bring mini grids in uh to bring finance into mini grids at scale um we we believe it works um when you do it uh correctly and so let's let's say and let's so let's lay out exactly what that is and um mini grids if you if you look at the i think it's the iea um they said between between now and 2030 if we want to hit universal um, energy access, uh, get everybody in the world electricity. We need $187 billion of investment into mini grids. CBEA's pilot fund doing this was $18 million, not even a drop in the water. And so we can't do it. We can't, uh, even if we wanted to, we couldn't do it by ourselves. We need, um, we need a lot of other entities like us out there, out here, um, project financing, mini grids, um, t- finding new solutions to the risks that we're all trying to solve, um, and, and in- injecting capital at scale into the sector to bring power to, to 600 million people. Um, I think it's similar to if you look at something like Tesla, right? And they said, look, we, uh, we know that we need a cleaner way for people to be able to drive, the, drive cars. Um, we think we have a solution um the these these vehicles we make it's not necessarily the only solution but it works best at scale so why don't we put the information out there why don't we open source it say we're all trying to solve the same problem and and uh, and maybe we can have our solution gain scale um and and benefit from that and so uh and and ultimately hit the the big goal which is let's have people drive less dirty cars and so right. that's what we're trying to do um and, and and so and so I think that's that's kind of the mentality behind it um and and so yeah we're re- we're really proud of that work um and and we're excited about about what's coming from it
1: yeah. Oh, this is great, and I know we're a little bit beyond what a typical episode is, but I mean, Humphrey, that's your fault uh, for being so fun to talk to. Apologies. Apologies. <laughs> so the last point is talking about the role of foreign exchange in these deals. And so when we think about foreign exchange, first of all, what is it in this context, and why is it so important?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 extremely critical. So let's say you're in the United States and you're doing a deal. Um, dollars a dollar so you don't really have to f- worry about converting currencies um but here let's say we're doing a transaction in zambia right a lot of our, our the finance that we raise our equity and debt capital that we're bringing in is typically hard currency um us dollars right so we've raised we have dollar denominated debt but as we described the the, the business model of a mini grid you have rural households in Zambia paying you per kilowatt hour for electricity, and they're paying you in kwacha, um, the 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 Zambian kwacha. Now, so now I'm earning kwacha, and I am and and I'm paying and when I'm using it to pay back dollar-denominated debt. Um, and so uh, maybe a good example is if you look in 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 2020, for example, the Zambian kwacha devalued 50 percent so if you are in that if you're in that scenario um and now all of a sudden the value of what you're earning just dropped significantly how do you pay your debt um and so foreign exchange is is um something that you really really need to, to keep in mind when you're when you're looking at at, at business on the continent um you have the Zambian kwacha, which is a, a, a like a free-floating currency, but then you have other currencies that that maybe the central bank has a bit more firm hand on that currency, and even there you can have different types of problems. So in twenty twenty, um, for example, the naira didn't didn't uh, there was a there was a slight devaluation, but not that much. Um, but at the same time, you had a lot of. Transfer and and convertibility risk. You you simply weren't um, if you were. A lot of companies struggled to get their Naira out of the country in dollars, right? So if you have Naira and you have dollar-denominated debt outside the country, making that switch it was very hard to do to to turn your Naira into dollars. Um, still, some challenges there. So just and, and it's just so just really understanding. Um, that you're not dealing with um, apples and apples it's not dollars and dollars right so you have to understand how the different currencies relate to each other how inflation might work um, how 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 depreciation of of the of the value of 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 whatever currency you're working in might work and and apply that to your project um, very thoughtfully and then also think hard about about um how you mitigate these risks right do you need to have hedges in place do you need to raise your debt um in local currency and and not have dollar denominated debt um i think this is one of those things where there's there's no real silver bullet uh, it's, it's really um a matter of of having a, a good amalgamation of different different options and bring them together and working very closely with with your your partners on on a transaction whether whether it be your lenders uh whoever your uh, equity investors everybody and, and and trying to say how do we put together um of you uh an understanding of, of of how we will approach foreign exchange but it it is a critical piece of of business on the continent and and really in in frontier markets um all over the world because uh, FX is 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 huge in these in these places.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's got to be challenging. And um, as, especially as a lawyer, I think about a lot of these deals in terms of risk, right, and risk mitigation and things like that. And so that sounds terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. And so is it a situation where there have been deals that have been lost simply because of the uh, the concern of foreign exchange. Um,
0: I, I would, I would, I would have to assume yes. Uh, um, I mean, in general, yes. The concern of foreign exchange makes makes people uh, or companies or entities not want to invest in certain countries at all, right? Or if you're looking. Um, if you're looking at a deal in a country while it's going through a, 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 a currency crisis, um, it, it would it would definitely make you consider whether or not that 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 investment um, still makes sense. I mean, FX when you put it into an Excel and a financial model and you start to play with it, really what it means is um, I was going to buy this thing for let's say $1 million, but when FX changed in this way very drastically, it's only worth half that, or it's only worth 75% of that. And the value of it changes. And like you said, it's very difficult from a risk perspective because um, it's, it's, it's not really anybody's fault. And so it's a risk that, like, that, that it, it makes it very, it becomes a very difficult and challenging conversation to say, okay, this has happened. How do we deal with it? who's impacted by it and why um, it, it, And it can definitely require some very creative solutions. Um, and like I said, there, 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 there's no silver bullet here. So um, uh, there, there, there are options out there, but this is one of the things, if you look into our, the, the, in the open source documents, you'll see that this is one of the ones where, we say, where, where we've kind of put out there, like this, is, um, this, this requires uh, some, some more thought on how we fix these solutions.
1: Makes sense. Wow. Yeah. So there, there is a lot to think about. (laughs) There's a lot to think about, but I I appreciate you taking the time to help us think about it and not just help us to get a better understanding of how these deals go down on the continent, but also how these general negotiation principles can apply to whatever it is that we're doing, wherever we happen to be. So I appreciate you taking the time there. And um, before you go, Humphrey, can you remind them again about where you work, how they can get in touch and, and learn more about what it is that you're doing?
0: All right. So the company that I'm at is called Cross Boundary. Um, the Cross Boundary Group is a mission driven investment organization that's focusing on uh, using the power of capital and, and having it make both a lasting impact and a strong return in frontier markets. And so um, if you want to learn more about Cross Boundary, you can check out the website www.crossboundary.com on Twitter. At Cross Boundary, uh, we have a number of teams uh, working in frontier markets on very interesting problems uh, all across the world. Um, and uh, it's 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 a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a, if you want to just check out the website, um, it's an inter- it, it's an interesting place to learn about the different ways that that capital is being to put to work in these types of markets um, around the world. Um, and then my team my team is Cross Boundary Energy Access. We focus on on mini grid project finance, uh, and we have a facility for doing that um yeah if i can just wrap I mean, if yeah if, if i can just think of like a few key takeaways from my side maybe one is that um if you if if the idea is okay i want to understand investing in africa uh i would i would urge you to be much more specific do you want to understand investing in uh in kenya and investing itself is too broad so do i want to understand project finance in kenya do i want to understand um stock markets in kenya uh do i want to understand equities or debt or how how do you want to you just need to be much more specific africa is not some broad monolith that someone can can go in and there are very few people who can just say i'm i'm an african uh in negotiations expert because i'm like what type of negotiation um because you can Be great in all of these, um, you know, all of all of these debt equity negotiations, investment negotiations. But um, when when you're trying to buy fish in the market, that's a whole different type of negotiation. And so, um, yeah, I think keep that in mind. And then when negotiating in general, um, always be humble, uh, be prepared and be open.
1: Love it. Thank you so much, my friend, for coming on the show. Can't wait to have you back.
0: All right. I would love to be back. Thanks so much, Kwame. It's been, it's been a pleasure chatting, catching up, <laughs> talking, and thanks so much for having me on your show.